Cradleine Network. Borak Thug Earthlets! My name is Connor and this is the 279th episode of Space Spinner 2000, a podcast where we try to make sense of the UK's own galaxy's greatest comic, 2000 AD, one month of progs at a time. This week, we're taking a break from our usual weekly progs to cover the 1994-2000 AD yearbook. Like annuals, yearbooks are dated for the year after they come out in, and this is the third yearbook and 17th and second to last annual type document. This time, we're rolling out a bunch of, I guess, from the cover, theoretically, space-themed stories. But who's to say? I think it's more of a horror theme, honestly, featuring Tyranny Rex, Robo Hunter, The Clown, Judge Dredd, Luke Kirby, Rogue Trooper, and that dang Big Dave. The price of the annual state the same, has stayed steady this year at £5.95, uh, but whatever to these to this price talk, because I'm more excited for my guest for this show, Avon of the Mega City Book Club. Welcome, Avon. Thank you, Conrad. It's great to be here. Absolutely. We find ourselves, I guess, in in Meg, in a book club home territory, but still still heavy with um, with space spinnerness, I guess. We're t- yeah, taping this one in person here in the heart of England's 2080 podcast country. It is. Yeah. This is the home of 2080 <laughs> podcasting now. Uh, yeah, Space Spinner UK. Exactly. How is that? I mean, hey, well, I'm asking the questions, but still. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, we've been... I, um, as we're recording this, I've been in England for about six months now. Um, I've been, I've, I've, I've gone to a bunch of different events just with other, you know, 2080 fans and stuff, which has been amazing. Um, you and I, because we ended up being very, very, very local, have gone out and done a bunch of stuff as well, which is really cool. Um, and then, you know, Fox is here too, and so... You know, a lot of lot of Conrad Fox time, both for 2008, both for Space Spinner and just in general, which is really nice after so many years of us being in, like, on different sides of the world and stuff like that. And, you know, it's a whole different, and it's just a whole different situation. It's weird to be able to say, oh, I do a podcast about 2000 AD, and people say, oh, okay, yeah, sure, as opposed to... <laughs> When you say that in England, they're like, "It's about a, y- a year." What are you What are you talking about? You know, <laughs> that's that's been nice actually. Sort of understand what I, what we're getting into here. <laughs> well, I'll quickly just say it's a delight to have you and Fox, both of you here in the UK. Uh, absolute delight. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we're having a lot of fun for Good. sure. But so on this annual here, you, uh, we. Uh, you were last on Space Spinner, I, I think, actually technically for the Star Lordathon, but before then, um, for the 1990-2000 AD annual. Now we're deep into the mid-90s, 93, and I feel like, you know, even though it's only been a couple years, a lot's, the, the prog feels a little different. And so I was just wondering, I forget, sorry, I forget your exact uh, 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 prog time, uh, 2080 fandom timeline, but if you have any memories of this era or like what, how you, like, were you still reading 2080 at this point or um, had you sort of d- discovered booze and pints at this point? Well, I think actually, unfortunately, I was even... Oh, sorry, girls and pints at Yeah, this point. I was That's beyond pints and all that at this point because I was this, at this point, I was doing Young Family. So oh, I was bringing wow. up a Young Family. So I was that, I was that, uh, 
age group of 2000 AD who were aging out of the comic. Mm-hmm. Um, so my experiences in the 90s with 2000 AD were a bit on and off. I would come back and read... I remember coming back to read Dead Man and Necropolis, mm-hmm. and I remember Judgment Day vaguely. Wilderness, actually, I meant to look up the Wilderlands one. Yeah, that's next year in, in, right. in 94. Yeah, because that was like the another one of the... We're going to cross over between yep. the Prog and the Meg. I remember reading that, but actually as we'll get to in a moment, some of the stories... This is the first time I'd read this yearbook, I confess. Mm-hmm. First time I'd read this yearbook. And some of the stories that are in here, I have quite little knowledge about. Mm. Um, yeah, I was, I was unfortunately, I was getting distracted by, you know, being a family man, growing up, having yeah. kids. And, Hard to blame you, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, the kids weren't at that age yet that they were starting that I was starting to give them comics. Right. Because when they got to that certain age, I think it's when I started um, putting things like Halo Jones in their hands. Mm-hmm. But also, it also made me go, well, I've been away for a while. What have I been missing? And yeah. I was doing some catching up. But it's, 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 it, that's after the 90s, I think. You know? Yeah, and I don't know if you, like, I don't know if you put, like, this era of 2000 AD in a, in a kid's hands, honestly. No. Like, we're definitely, we're, we're definitely getting into, the, like, 2000 AD at this point, I feel like is for sort of teenagers and things like that, as opposed to, you know, the, the earlier era where you could see it being, okay, like, having something for an eight-year-old or something, or, or or even younger than that. Well, there's at least one strip in here which is supposedly for a different comic, but we'll talk about that. Yeah. That, that, and that, you know, we'll talk about 2000 AD. Was it getting too old, trying to grow up too much? Or, you know, anyway, yeah. Yeah. I, well, you know, they're in a difficult, it's a difficult situation of just like, I, I mean, we talk about this. Uh, yeah, sorry. Let, let's let's talk about that a little bit later because I okay. think it's the cha- but it's it's the challenge of always of comics is the for so many years the comics model is just that like kids show up when they're you know eight maybe uh, like like just when you're sort of learning to read and then you read comics for four years maybe and then you move on to other things yeah and that's what it was for for decades like i was i i, I was go back to that it's in the in a uh not in a in a, in a history of marvel comics where they sort of talked about how you know you get a cohort of four years basically and but you can you can comfortably like if not rerun the same stories and have basically the same story every four years yeah. or something you know you can have you know you know a spider-man can have a have a titanic showdown with the green goblin every four years and you aren't going to get people saying like oh i've seen this before sure. you know yeah then at least now it's a little bit different <laughs> but yeah um yeah, it's an interesting time. I think I'm I'm actually pretty inter- or I'm excited for where this annual shows up. Uh, right. We were talking about this a little bit off mic, but I feel bad that we sort of had the sci-fi special before we had gotten the summer offensive in Maniac Five earlier this year because they had a Maniac Five sort of prologue in there. We didn't have a lot of context. Whereas this year we got maximum context because yeah. you know just so you know we're we're picking up. Here from Prague 851, so the the summer offensive is complete and the autumn attack is about to begin, I guess. 93 huge for these sort of jumping on periods. And so we've just had um, prologue stories for um, Luke Kirby, Slain, Strontium Dogs, and Friday. 
and like the Luke Kirby and Friday ones are prologues for stories that won't be in the progs for like many months. Actually, same right. with the clown too. He had a clown. Or no, that was be- that was right before the summer offensive started. Sorry, that was a, a quick clown prologue. And yeah, and then of course we're sort of getting towards the end of Inferno in right. Judge Dredd as well. But that takes us to I guess getting into the annual here. The cover is a, 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 as you've said a a French fold. Yeah, right? French flaps. French flaps. So it's a fold out <laughs> cover on both sides. Glossy. Uh, back cover yeah and um i think i can say that all the characters on the cover do appear in this yearbook it is it is surprising yes yeah. <laughs> but yeah we've got sort of everybody floating through space i guess uh luke kirby um or sorry um S- the clown sam slade hammerstein tyranny rex uh, uh rogue trooper rojaws tharg even dread they're spaced out, which made me think that this might be a space-themed sp- annual, but I don't think that really is borne out by the, the content of the annual. <laughs> um, and then the inside cover um, has John's John Bird's drawing a uh, surrealist landscape with a table of contents and dread. He's heard of, uh, he's investigating the art world from inside, which makes me shake my fist because the 93 annual was supposed to be art-themed and had art uh thar with a beret and all these statues and stuff but didn't really have an art themed uh dread and now we've got an art themed dread and it's like what what is going on here it's in the wrong here i guess so which of course brings us to thrill one judge dread because it's an annual i gotta i i, I gotta be careful about my chapter openings yes. even, because there's a lot of, <laughs> lot lot of chapters coming up here but a script about john wagner art about john burns like about tom frame and this story is called Virtual Unreality. Uh, Dread notices a door of an art gallery standing open and goes to investigate. Inside, he finds an artist, August Pallet, or maybe Palais if you want to be French. Um, he's waiting inside. It seems he's an art forger, though he doesn't actually, like, he just makes copies of famous paintings and doesn't sign them. And if someone else should buy them and put a fake signature on them, then who, who is he to say, I guess? Um, but it seems parts of his paintings have been disappearing. Mona Lisa's lost it, lost her smile. Van Gogh's sunflowers have disappeared, or, uh, have, have disappeared, etc. Um, and so he needs Dredd to investigate and does so by painting a happy little Judge Dredd into one of his works. And suddenly Dredd is there. I'm here for the Bob Ross references. <laughs> Listen, there's no, no mistakes, only happy violations of the law. <laughs> um, inside investigating, Dredd finds a very agreeable sort of cockney Salvador Dali selling a bunch of uh, a, a bunch of art paints. He's got Van Gogh's sunflowers and Van Dyke's beard. Oi, crikey, etc. Um, Dredd identifies him as the possible thief and in response the perp pulls a painting of a gun. Dredd returns fire and his bullets have sort of gained faces like a new friend Roger Rabbit or something as they fly into their target. And the Dolly um, is hit and bleeds green, red, and yellow paint. It's proper surreal, isn't it? But as he dies, Dally says that he bought this stuff from those from the Picassos. So I guess Dread heads through a door that just takes him sort of to the backstage of, of the art world, I guess. Like this seems some sort of state like, I don't know, you can walk through a painting and there's a hallway where all the paintings are connected, it seems like. It seems, yeah. <laughs> because he passes by like a room full of uh, angelic Rubens 
and a a, a waterlogged uh, Turner room full of like semi-burning ships and things like that. And then eventually bursts into the Picasso room where everything's weird and cubist, of course. They've got Mona Lisa's smile, which, you know, pins it on them. But they've also got cubist pistols, oh no! <laughs> um, they open fire and Dredd shoots back, um, takes them out. He guns down these neo-primitive art forms. They just wanted to shake up the system, man, as they die. And with the case saved, uh, Pallet lets Dredd out of the picture. And Dredd basically says, uh, keep your nose clean, and walks off, because this is too weird even for him, basically. <laughs> so, written by John Wagner, and Dredd's a bit, uh, behaving a bit weirdly in this one, doesn't he? This is a very, this is a very, like, especially in comparison to, like, Inferno, which yeah. we're reading right now, which is just, like, about, which is, like, grimy death and being tough and stuff. This is an extremely light, like, for all the murder, this is an extremely lighthearted Dredd story. <laughs> I wonder if they did want to put it in the previous year's yearbook um, and be art themed, but this one maybe it was it was delays. I mean, you know, you get John Burns to paint all these great paintings, mm-hmm. and uh, I've spoken to John Burns. He's not a technology chap, so this was all. Um, this is oh wow, yeah, hand done. I yeah, guess, I'm yeah. guessing this is all him doing it by hand, and it looks it looks great. Mm-hmm. It's just a weird dread tale, though, isn't it's, it? It's like, well, because you know. <laughs> It's one of these things, right, where you've got to be... It's so, like, because Dread is this omni-fantasy sci-fi story, right? As I always always remind Fox, like, Dread has, in fact, personally been a werewolf, right? Which we can never... Which basically puts everything on the table, right? So... Like wizards and warlocks and dudes painting you into paintings and stuff. It's not like it's not coming out of nowhere, but it is. It's not unweird or whatever. Like it's sort of worth like noticing. And yeah, I agree. This is kind of a weird dread story. It, uh, but I also feel like it's a good annual dread story, actually, because it's very like silly, and you'd never see it in the progs and stuff like and that. It doesn't refer to anything else. And yeah, 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 very self-contained, and just like all right, like let and and literally seems like ends with like a let's never speak of this again. Yes, kind of dread going off saying yeah, just I'm not I'm I'm not paying attention to this. This is not worth getting into. But Too we weird. do get to see John Burns do some recreations of Rubens and Picasso and Turner mm-hmm. and Da Vinci. And uh, yeah, I've just been almost, I've always been got by the Conrad, um, listen, Dredd was a werewolf in <laughs> time of defense, which is quite true. I stand. I mean, hands up. you know, he just fought a zombie apocalypse, yeah. you know, like it's tough. Weird stuff. Because I, I agree that, you know, it, it's easy to think of Dredd as, as gritty and realistic, but. The counterpoint is, like, you know, there are, like, he fights a lot of wizards also, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, 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 and and not wizards where someone calls, like, a Jedi a space wizard when they're making fun of, like, of Star Wars, right? But, like, literal, like, I am casting a magic spell to do this stuff kind of wizards, you know? <laughs> oh, dear. So it's all right. It's a little weird oddity. Um, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And speaking of weird oddities, actually, let's continue on to Thrill 2, Tharg the Mighty. Oh, no. I'm going to need your help. Like, this is one where um, I'm glad I've, I've, I've got an English man around so I could not can ask about some of these cultural things. Okay. Although I feel like I've got some of it. But this one, uh, script robot John Tomlinson, art robot Eric Bradbury, letting robot Tom Frame. Always fun to see these Eric Bradbury Tharg stories. They've been a real staple of the specials and annuals for the last couple of years, actually. 
And this time, the Mighty One is visiting Richie and Judith on the set of Grud Morning, which I'm told is uh, Richard and Judy from the show This Morning, and yeah. then later their own talks or, or chat show, as you call them here, and that, that, that kind of stuff. Yeah, they were huge for ages, and he's still... He, I think she's retired, but he still turns up on Good Morning Britain. He's sort of taken over the Piers Morgan seat, which is not necessarily... <laughs> You oh know. my! All right, let's uh, let's uh, move swiftly forward. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they've got some like a hundred and one cress recipes and how to remove your hair using fabric softeners and some extremely boring things. And indeed, uh, as a uh, Bert who's there with Tharg yawns, Tharg explains this is why he's here to deal with a massive infestation of thrill suckers. Of course, are, are the the ancient foe. Tharg spots them, but then Judy reveals herself to be one of the dictators of Zrag. Oh, no. Yeah, no. He swears revenge on Tharg, sending him and Bert out a window and into a giant glass beaker, I guess. With the protector of thrill power seemingly trapped, the dictator of Zrag takes over the airwaves, sending out a massive blast of boring programming to the uh, innocent people of Earth. But, or sorry, Tharg and Tharg and Bert are stuck in a giant plastic container? Oh no, because luckily plastic is what Tharg craves. So he pulls out a knife and fork and seemingly quickly, quickly frees himself. Yep. As we see a thrill sucker directly announcing the uh, the uh, the audience saying that first the dread movie's been canceled, then it's back on, but they're casting Bob Holness as Dread, yeah. who is another newscaster. I feel like, and he yes, he he's a newscaster. He did a game show called Countdown, uh, where people had to ask for letters so it's famous for the jokey one when he says I'll have a pee please Bob <laughs> but he's also I think the trivia is Bob Holness played James Bond on the radio before Sean Connery was cast oh interesting yeah so that's I think where the reference is <laughs> But then, be, 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 before more havoc can be wrought, Tharg bursts in with a hail of Rigelian hot shots and sending everybody, um, s- sending the, the dictator and thrag and the, the uh, and the thrill suckers running and returning to norm- normal prod to a and normal service returns, I should say. A few weeks later, Tharg is on the Groat Big Breakfast, where stand where the uh, stand-ins for uh, Chris Evans. No, not that one. No, not the other one. Um, and Gabby Roslin reveal that Tharg has really shaken up the morning TV industry. We see his nephews, which I think may include a future regined host, Jocko Jargo, um, doing some some cooking sh- some cooking stuff. And Tharg's rarely seen sister Marg leading aerobics classes because <laughs> it's 1993. I yes, still, I guess, in the Green Goddess outfit. <laughs> Who was a uh, fitness oh, that's right. morning fitness host? Yeah, and um, at then and finally, uh, Veeble Sump, the dictator of Zrag, and his pal, the Thrill Sucker, are stuck inside a test pattern for the t- until the end of time. It's TV limbo or whatever. Test patterns—they were a thing as well, weren't they? Yeah, <sighs> dear. This I think this comes from the phase when I would say. I was pretty done with Tharg, actually. I mean, we're getting... Everybody's getting more and more done with Tharg, yeah. I think. Like, you know, I, we're maybe like two years away, I want to say, from, from Vector 13 or whatever. Yeah, yeah. David Bishop's going to come in and he's going to be pretty keen that he wants to get rid of Tharg. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think it's very much just like good for an annual, good for a space filler or something like that. And honestly, like not so much in this one, but I feel like in, in other Tharg stories, it's more just been a chance to kind of for the editorial team to get their caricatures in there or something like that with anything else. And they've just done a Tharg story in the 45th anniversary issue, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, I was like, I don't need, how do we do it? I mean, it's just like, it's always, or I mean, less here actually, but I think in general, like it's a chance to kind of pull back the mask and be met and sort of be explicitly meta, you right. know, like the, 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 the Tharks had revisited is what I always think about for when Tharg appears in the comics these days, like it's less about an actual character and more just a chance to, I don't know, reflect or bring back like old characters or something yeah. like that. I don't know. But speaking of a chance to reflect, ah, Thrill 3 covers of 1992. We just a filler section of just covers for the previous year rated by creative droids and stuff like that. For me, the top cover has to be um, the Button Man one from 789 with Harry Exton in the big in the big target and stuff like that. That's an amazing cover. Although um, the cover of 796, which has a Dread and J- Johnny Alpha and, and Judge Dread together, is also a very fun one. Yeah, I mean you've got some stiff competition because you've got covers by Carlos Escara, Colin McNeil, mm-hmm. Cliff Robinson. I think there's uh, Sean Phillips, uh, Mick Austin. Yeah, Steve uh, Yole, I think, is a Zenith one. Steve Yole, John Ridgway. So there's great competition, but Prog 789, the Button Man target cover, is clearly the best of the bunch. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just so iconic. And yeah. I really like... Get, I mean, they've used it as... They, it's the cover of the... Graphic no- of the fir- of the first graphic novel collection, I think, too, because it does sort. It really sets a tone for that comic, and just has a very like I don't know modern feel to it, I guess. And it's four pages they manage of this filler. Listen, I mean, <laughs> I'll, I'll 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 say having having looked through them both, some like a discussion for of these yearbooks especially is going through and seeing whether the dread one or the like like which one like. They, they got socks for yeah this year and actually I will say I think the 2000 AD one is the is the 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 it's like the thicker of the annuals as opposed to sort of the the dread yearbook which I think is a little thinner it had because the dread yearbook has multiple text pieces and quite a f- and and more reprints than this one does right like the the dread yearbook does have a uh, like it's got a Mick McMahon dread which I think is really like shocking something I I didn't think I'd see in ni- in the nineties honestly yeah. but I think that's sort of all it has actually <laughs> or it and like it's got like three mat or two massive stories too just a big Dean Ornstrom dread and like a a twenty one page Armitage story but the rest is filler pretty much so this one is a little bit more varied but even this has some weird some weird things <laughs> in it yeah. as well so it's hard to begrudge there's ju- just the cover thing because. While it's filler, it's also kind of a tradition at this point in these yearbooks. And, you know, <laughs> that's just kind of how it goes with the, with the publication. Indeed. Yeah. And so I guess, I don't know, I mentioned um, that, or also in these yearbooks, a big thing is just continuing stories and having important parts of them that are just in these yearbooks and vaguely referred to, which is what we've got in our next thrill. Thrill 4, Tyranny Rex. Uh, script for Robot John Smith, art robot Paul Marshall, letting robot Annie Parkhouse. 
So, Abe, and I'm recording these episodes a little out of order. So, at this point, I'm pretty pissed that we have some plot essential Tyranny Rex st- stuff that gets referred to <laughs> oh, no. in the upcoming Tyranny Rex story. Uh, but not not really. But, like, I don't know. I would have liked to have known this coming into the uh, into Tyranny Rex. I right. Guess. Oh, okay. So, Tyranny Rex, former mercenary and modern artist, is now a nun in her seventh year at the Church of the Third Immaculum, and she's never been so frightened. She's been having prophetic dreams and a general feeling of sort of oncoming doom. She prays at an altar when another sister comes and gets her because a third sister, Sister Venice, is dying. We find the... um, we find the sister covered in, in welts and like bug bites, I guess, and learns that, that she was attacked in the fields by a huge swarm of lilium bugs, which are normally very docile and sweet, but have suddenly gone berserk. Um, and their attacks are keeping the sisters from harvesting the crops and the fields around the convent, which of course will, you know, speak, which, which could mean starvation when the winter comes. Uh, sister Kira, or High Sister Kira, who's this sort of sugar glider nun, and something we see more in the progs, this is all the, a lot, pretty much all the nuns in this monastery or convent, I guess, are a non-human, but still bi- bipedial, you know, sort of Star Trek school. Of, right. Uh, or actually, no, maybe Star Wars, actually, school of, of, of aliens where they're not quite human, but, you know, still, you could fit a guy in a suit in there if you needed to. <laughs> But she wants uh, Tyranny to deal with to deal with this situation, and so we see Tyranny walking out into the rolling fields around the convent, dressed in sort of an armored beekeeper outfit, which is pretty fun. I don't know; it's got like the veil and stuff. Yeah, it is. I, I worry about her tail. I must say, <laughs> like you'd think you wouldn't send somebody who's got an exposed tail for this kind of job, but that's how it goes. Um. As she, as she enters, a massive onslaught of bugs attack her, and she wonders if this is the bad thing that she's been having prophetic dreams of and stuff. Suddenly, something big and fast comes at her. A giant black lilium bug with an armored breastplate and terrifying scorpion tail. Tyranny barely dodges its opening attack, then hefts the staff she has and says, let's get this over with, strikes hard and fast and jams her staff into the monster's abdomen, sort of crushing organs and finding its spine and destroying it. But then, as the creature dies, it points to some of the fruits in the field, uh, jackmelons, I guess what they're, they're, they're calling them, and it instantly becomes clear to Tyranny that actually these alien fruits are housing gestating uh, lilium so when they went to harvest them they were also like killing the next generation of the lilium and stuff so the they fought back and it's you know misinterpreted and all that kind of stuff um the the uh, the, the being as it dies says that she was the last mother of the lilium and as she dies so does the species so feel bad about that miss tyranny rex Yes. You did this. Genocide again in his comic. Ah, <laughs> oh, by accident. Yeah. And to her credit, Tierney does feel pretty bad. So bad she doesn't notice the meteorites um, scribbling omens across the sky, which we'll learn about next episode. But due to the mysteries of recording schedules, I will have forgotten by then. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, Paul Martial Art starts with a wonderful page where he's doing... I think a pretty good Steve Dillon, actually. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, over the pages, it then becomes more and more 
John Smith inflected because you get that sort of weird aliens, insectoids, yeah, body horror. Bi- sort. Bi- yeah, big narration boxes, yeah. sort of making allusions to things. I mean, even like even the opening does have so- what I kind of like. There's a couple like sort of I don't know. I'm a big fan of John Smith. I yeah. gotta say, I, I I love his writing, but he definitely has some notes that he hits a lot and. Part of it is, yeah, like when Tyranny's going into the field and there's these just sort of like unconnected sentences sort of creating a, a, a um, like a, a a stressful moment and stuff. But even the opening page does have some Smith, some the 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 other Smith there's in which is just throwing a bunch of like uh, words and jargon at you that will not be explained. So, you know, she's in her seventh year of the th- the Church of the Third Immaculum, say. Yeah. Right, which is just like, well, what's that? Like, don't worry yeah. about it. Yeah, don't worry about it. Just it's here to make it seem alien, you know. I I'm, I must say I I like Tyranny Rex as the nun in the nunnery mm. who gets called upon to solve the the weird stuff the weird yeah they, they 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 kind of know that she's had ex- like be, because of her history she's she's can be counted on to handle some of these weirder tasks and yeah. stuff I mean I, I was trying to think of other sort of like nuns who do that who's like you know become the mystic uh, like the father Shandor from other comics who sort mm-hmm. of solve all the weird stuff and I couldn't think of too many but they did it in the recent Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat adaptation of Dracula oh interesting you've yeah. seen that oh that, that, that yeah I, yeah yeah there was a nut there was a nun that was sort of the main antagonist yeah. to that. Yeah. Or, or, sorry, protagonist against Dracula. Yeah. yeah. So I like that. But yeah, I like, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm all for Tyranny Rex hiding out in a nunnery yeah. and getting called out to do weird stuff. Also, there was that, like, also on, on Netflix, there was, there was that uh, Warrior Nun TV show. Oh, right. Which is fine. Right. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> Haven't seen it, but okay. It's, but I'm, it's fine. <laughs> I, you know, I would be there for 2000 AD and, and Warrior Nun Tyranny Rex. Yeah. I think it's fun. You know, as a, um, you know, this is my talk, talk about Warhammer for a second, but there's a whole, like, sort of nuns with guns faction that oh, I, yes. I, I've painted some guys for and is really fun just because they sort of, I don't know, they, the, it's, it's just an interesting take on, like, I guess, you know, of fantasy characters, I guess, because it means that you don't have that like the the armor that, with the bared midriff or the the chainmail bikini and stuff like that. Because they're sure. nuns, they've got to have a certain yeah. like level of modesty and stuff. And I think it gives them a chance to like kick ass or something. Yeah, and I think it's also just a, a lot of cultural weight for for, for nuns hurting people as well. <laughs> One way or another. <laughs> Absolutely. And in this case, hurting the mother of an entire race. Indeed. Who she wipes out. But black and white art looks great. Looks really nice on the page. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess speaking of stuff that's continuing on from the progs or, or continuing to the progs, is this story will be starting the next Tyranny Rex story in our next episode with art by Mark Buckingham, which I'm very excited about is really nice and now we're continuing from a story that we started in our previous in our previous space spinner episode back and forth here timey-wimey with thrill five luke kirby okay uh script robot alan mckenzie art robot john ridgeway letting robot annie parkhouse this story's called trick-or-treat and indeed it's set in Halloween. there's an apostrophe in between the e's in 1963 Although I gotta say, I've been told that trick or treating doesn't really come to England for many years. So, from 1963. I thought this was anachronistic as well, and I looked it up. 
So they would have been doing it, but they wouldn't have been calling it trick or treating. It would have been called guising. Ah, um, and they they like they a, would pr- probably reference like Guy Fox or something, uh, like, or, or just be wearing a costume, so you're wearing a yeah, guise. I think so, something like that. They, so they would have been do they would do it. Kids would dress up and go around and get candy, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't call it trick or treat, and they wouldn't say trick or treat. And I don't think trick or treat crosses the Atlantic until we work this out, didn't we? Somewhere around yeah, et I, yeah, et is usually the the, 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 the one I've heard from several people where yeah. they saw that I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> like, candy's available. Oh, my gosh. So I think the costumes and the activities are okay, but I think the the description of it is wrong. Interesting. Yeah. This, you know. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> History thing. History it's, stuff. it's the tough stuff with the period pieces. Yeah. You know? Anyway, Luke Kirby is the Grim Reaper, although his mom makes him wear a scarf, which I think is pretty funny. Catch your death of cold, etc. And he's going trick-or-treating with his friends who are dressed as Guy Fox and the cowboy, I think. Yep. Um, and the guy Fox is one of those like uh, uh, black uh, globe bombs or whatever. <laughs> Very good. Um, the current area there is too busy, so the lads head over to Wood Hill Street to gather up the candy there. Things are going well until they reach the house, which I guess is the abandoned house where the Nightwalker story took place. But I guess now it's been re rehomed. Someone's moved in there now, the elderly Matilda Kane. But Luke is leery as he approaches it because there's rumors that uh, she is a witch. And indeed, when he knocks on the door, a shapely young witch answers. Sexy witch. Hey, finally. Sexy witch costume. <laughs> you know, sort of, a, yeah, sort of a Elvira style, I guess. Yeah. Um, she demands a trick and it teases his scarf that he's the last of the Kirby, so he must know some little magic trick. Danger, Lou Kirby, be careful. Warning, warning. Sorry, she, she says magic with a C and a K, so she I does. say magic. It's yeah. internet um, requirement. But yeah, when this is when you you like, oh, okay, I'm being attacked by a succubus. I should be careful <laughs> if you ask me, I guess. I've seen I've seen TV. Um, but she pulls him into the house and closes the door, and if he won't do something for her, then she's got a trick for him, and suddenly smoke comes out of her hands, forming a mystic screen, which then shows Luke an image of his father in the past. And this generally seems to be a continuation of the Luke Kirby flashback story that we saw the prologue for last episode, where Luke's dad and Uncle Elias sort of discussed that um he that Luke's dad should go out and like have some big confrontation to fight the devil and like the world is at stake that kind of stuff so we see Luke's dad heading into this evil forest to confront some some modern day druids he does that arriving in the middle of the woods where folks in robes or you know um chanting around a bonfire and stuff they assault him with swords and daggers when suddenly a fiery portal opens oh no trouble and a great black ear uh black furred demon steps forward and the narration says it's just sort of a minor demon with a sumerian with a typically impronounceable sumerian name which i thought was pretty funny lots of z's and a couple of x's or something like that (laughs) exactly um and they and this monster grabs luke's dad picks him up and carries him back through the portal which then disappears 
Luke is shocked by all this, I guess as you would be, and goes running out of the house, even as um, the witch says she has more to tell him. I'll stick for the end, Luke. Yeah, come on. You've got to <laughs> listen. If you, if, you, if you don't know that you can YouTube the after credit stuff later, you've got to stick around <laughs> for it. That's sort of how it goes. People think you, <laughs> you missed a trick. Um, the next day, Luke returns to ask some questions, but finds the front door unlocked. And when he goes in, there's a man inside. He's Aunt Tilly's nephew here to check out the place now that um, Matilda died last Monday. Oh, spooky. And we learn, and I'll, I'll tell you from my own research that 1963 Halloween was on a Thursday, so it's oh. been a couple days yeah, using the internet. Well done. <laughs> and the nephew says, oh yeah, Ma Aunt Tilly was a strange old girl. Hey, check out this picture of her when she was 19, and it's the same picture of the witch that Luke saw last night. Do, 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 do. <laughs> So we talked about this one before because this is almost like the vanishing hitch, vanishing oh, hitchhiker yeah. this urban is legend. To like that's why I'm I'm doing this inflection because that's yeah. such like you know campfire ghost story kind of stuff. Yeah, you go back to the house the next day and it's all being packed up and the person who lived that, there died. That person hasn't lived here for twenty years. That kind of stuff. And also just mention uh, lovely color work uh, by Luke by, by John Root by, by, by Ridgeway. Yeah, yeah, Ridgeway and. At a couple of points, this sort of weird demon, when it's back to us, looks like a looks like a minotaur, minotaur. -y Little bit. Listen, you're you're bringing this up because I'm <laughs> I'm in a state because as we're recording this, I'm in a state of low key freak out about the upcoming uh, Doctor Strange movie. Um, you know, long term podcast, uh, Stranger by the Dozen. Check it out. But. Um, in the trailer for that, there's several shots of um, Doctor Strange's Minotaur, or or what? How do you say it in England? Minotaur. Minotaur. Minotaur yeah. apprentice uh, Rintra, who's this green uh, alien Minotaur from beyond the stars that Doctor Strange hung out with a little bit in sort of in the in the mid '80s. And man, when I saw those horns in the multiverse of Madness trailer, I was like, you. Like, I was very excited. Uh, so, yeah, Earthlets with um, strange magical powers, uh, we will be. We can confirm that you and I will be going to see the Doctor Strange movie pretty much as soon as we can that week. Absolutely, I yeah. yeah I mean, we're very excited. I'm super excited. Yeah. Lord knows. <laughs> yeah. You know, watch watch The Stranger by the Dozen Space as well. Okay. As oh, cool. That or, might whatever. return. Good. <laughs> um, meanwhile, Luke Kirby. Yes. Yeah. It's all right. I mean, I think it's in because I know, like, I'm. This, like I said, I'm bummed this one isn't in the progs. Right. Just because I, I, I forget what exactly happens in the next Luke Kirby story, but I believe he does go to hell in search of his father. Right. Oh, and this I remember, would make so much sense. And I remember sort of being like, well, how do we know that? Like, how do we... How does he know? <laughs> like, like, whatever. And yeah. I forget if they sort of say it explicitly, but if I had seen this before and had known that it would happen, then I would have been more gung-ho about like, oh, yeah, okay. Like, this sort of gives us some meaning because otherwise it's just i mean it's it's still implied because in the in the in the progs you see sort of his dad walking off to confront some druids or something but not sort of the outcome of that confrontation which is what yeah. we get here okay i mean on its own it stands as a nice neat little halloween ghost story definitely a fairly yeah it is a sort of fairly typical halloween ghost story isn't it you i know? mean yeah it, it, it hits the precise beats yes you know yeah, yeah. while trying to fold in some of the of the luke kirby mythos in there as well but right. it is very much like the meat of it is we went trick-or-treating there was a there was a young lady that was spooky 
Yeah. We went back the next day. She's been dead for 20 years. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. That kind of stuff. And it happened at the weird house that nobody likes to go to. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> Speaking of a uh, blast from the past, Amen. <laughs> Let's go to Thrill 6 Conversation Piece. Oh no, do we have to? Oh shit, it's quick. Thrill, uh, script about Neil Gaiman, art about Dave White, letter about Tom Frame. Classic future shock here. Um, another instance of the of the Sandman's own Neil Gaiman showing up when you're on the show, actually. Yeah, because yeah. we talked about his text story. The, yeah, the where, where Hershey one. went to uh, to Britsit. Yeah. yeah. And here he is, just two pages. This is this is the first of the reprint material, isn't it? Yes, yes. This one first appeared in Prague 489, um, Space Spinner episode 154, and it's the first work by uh, David Wyatt as well. Right. In Prague. Okay. Who did t- t- a few more things. But we, we fly over Earth, you know, full of buildings and monuments and stuff as voices talk about the quality of the workmanship. Apparently, they employ little creators to build everything. And then once they reach a certain point, point they flash freeze the planet preserving it for artistic posterity if they don't the homuncules will blow everything up and that's just what they do here on earth oh no um anyhow i need two for my next party you know just take a a few million years so get a cup of coffee and come back and there'll be two new earths for you in a couple hours (laughs) so two pages black and white i guess this is one of the ones where neil gaiman doesn't get paid for the reprint material and says, you know, I'm the future I think, shock documentary. I mean, man, I, yeah, absolutely, 100%. Yeah. And, I, and I feel like, you know, in in both cases, this is very much like, all right, we've got some, we, we, we've got some big names in our archives. Let's just toss these out here. Yeah. You know, um, whichever which the other reprint as well, or one of the other reprints as well. And I wonder what, what's the first use of the alien trope where you pull back out of planet Earth and it's either yeah. a jewel or it's a marble at the end of Men in Black 1 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely, yeah. It's like a every, snow globe on a shelf or something, you know. I mean, it's a, it's a variation on the aliens are actually very tiny theme. Yeah, right? oh, that's I mean, a good one as that well. That one's classically, of course, yeah. with, with an invading alien army, yeah. but... It's still very much the, like, all that is never was is, you know, this thing on the table or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's just, yeah, yes. no, it's, it's definitely, yeah, like... It's a piece of jewelry. Future Shock Mega Myth number seven or something yeah. like that. Absolutely. Uh, but I guess, yeah, that's about how all of, the, all of the terrors men do to one another being contained in a tiny conversation piece. But let's get more specific about the terrors that men do to each other in like in one specific package with thrill seven the burning man um i there's no credit card for this one i only know about it because i I think it's reprinted in the judge dread magazine 300 which has a credit card for it right um with so we know it's script robot john wagner and art robot color sascara um, and I did not expect to find this creative team and apparently the era that I feel like this is because this feels very old. Um, and it's pretty clearly this story is a pilot of a, of a story that's never really picked up, I guess. Yeah. It's, we see an American football game being played with the New York Nukes versus the London Royals, with the Royals winning by 44 to 40. It's the last play of the game and it all comes down to quarterback Tony Carrera. But as the players line up, we see that Carrera is in the middle of a set of crosshairs. Because it seems Tony has some heavy gambling debts. He will own those debts, want an example made. 
High above the field, a sniper aims his rifle, presses a button on his dark sunglasses to make them open like uh, Venetian blinds, like those novelty sunglasses <laughs> that you can get places. Which I think is pretty silly, but I don't know. I yeah. think it's funny also. I would love to have a pair of glasses that Stylish. did that, actually. <laughs> anyway, the ball is snapped and Tony goes to run when the sniper who... Uh, in the narration boxes, calls himself Johnny Goodnight, takes aim at the scrambling Carrera and shoots, hitting the quarterback right in the eye. We get a pretty graphic shot, honestly, of this guy getting shot in the face, like through his football helmet. Um, it's not, it's not yeah. nice. No. <laughs> and he falls just short of the end zone. Goodnight closes his glasses and leaves as, as uh, trainers and stuff run out to Carrera. Johnny's making his way out of the stadium when suddenly he crumples up against a wall, a burning pain in his gut. A security guard asks if he's okay, but Johnny just passes it off as indigestion and walks out, but knows it's some sort of symptom. Later in future London, he goes to get checked out, and we learn that it's pyrocilius, an alien toxin also known as Satan's fire. Oh, I should say we learned that it's Super Bowl 90, I think, as he leaves, which would put it about 20, like in the 2040s. Oh, I think, okay. All right. Assuming, assuming that Super Bowls continue to be held once a year, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's a, he's been infected by a toxin known as Satan's fire. Victims are slowly consumed by flame, burned alive from the inside out, slowly and painfully, and Johnny's got it. He must have been infected while doing a job down the Antarctica rainforest. Frequent, frequent feature of John Wagner's work. There was one in Strontium Dog as, as well, as I recall. Anyway, he will die of this disease, but there's no telling it could happen tomorrow. It could happen in a couple years, but one way or another, it will involve horrific pain. Um, but he, the doctor also says that you can't just get accidentally infected by this. Someone has to sort of very purposefully do it, and whoever does it must hate Johnny Goodnight a whole lot. And with that determined, it looks like we're out for revenge, Avon. Yeah, vengeance. Like, time for him to head out figure out who, you know, on the journey that'll lead to, like, spend the rest of his short life finding the people who caused his death. And then the end of this is a little black bar in the bottom that says an Ed Monochromatic uh, presentation. I don't know. No, I don't know. Oh, is, oh, is it E8? Is it, this is just, is this Ooh, outside okay. Eight? Okay, could be eight. could be, yeah, E8 instead of Ed then. It's hard for me to read this, the small stuff, but yeah. So we had to talk about this and theorize that this might have been a Pilots 4 and Earthside 8 story, which we'll recall was a comic that was supposed to be for younger readers and just sort of be by Fleetway to kind of get younger folks back into reading comics and stuff like that, but never actually went to market, I think. Yeah. And it does feel like it's a John Wagner and Carlos Escara thing that possibly they've had in the sh on the shelf yeah. for you know, a little while. Yeah, I mean, like, a, like I remember... I don't know if they do this now, but I know in th there's times in like American TV where you'll get to like the summer and it's reruns and they'll show like movies of the week or something. And it will be like and 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 and, and all the, the movie, quote unquote, is is like the first two episodes of a TV show that was never that they made just those two episodes and then nothing else came of it. Right. Basically, you know, it's a, it's like it, it, it's like a pile that's been packaged as a movie. And I think those actually do get kind of sold to international markets as well. And that's what this feels like, just because you know, it's hey, look at this cool character. Yeah. He's being cool. Yeah, 
he now he's got a problem and it's time to have a bunch of like episodic adventures to solve that problem basically and he's got a signature Carlos face he's got the long face the turned down lips he's got those cool sunglasses a slightly 90s haircut a cool looking blade yeah. runner coat exactly so he's not a bad character design i mean carlos was always great at characters wasn't he it definitely feels like i i i've read that um like at this like at this time sort of in the early 90s carlos has a whole thing of where he's just sort of designing characters and sort of being like hey like could you tell a story about this like that's where the bad man came from right in uh at the start of the magazine like it sort of got pitched as the start of this like i don't know dread origin mega epic but i think it was more that apparently more that carlos was just hey i've got this guy like what's the story for this guy and then yeah. more more built out of it and i feel like that's how like lady constantine constantine came from as well actually right right and it's basically i mean again we talked we've talked about tropes to get used over and over again it's basically mm -hmm. this is that movie that's been remade a few times and is you know like it's been done as a tv show as well doa isn't it the guy walks into a police station and wants to report a murder and they say who's been murdered and he says me oh know? yeah 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 yeah. and he's got whatever period of time to solve his own mm -hmm. murder before he yeah or him. i mean the standard just sort of i don't know want like it's, it's got more of a clock to it but sort of but although it, although it doesn't actually have a clock because it could be he could die tomorrow he could die in years who knows yeah but that same sort of like I'm outside of society. I'm going to have advent. I'm, it, it's time to wander the earth, kind of situation, like the Fugitive or the Incredible Hulk, for instance. Right. That kind of stuff as well. Right. Uh, there's an Elizabeth Winstead movie on Netflix again recently, but she's a she's a, a a hit woman, and she gets poisoned, and she's got oh, that's right, yeah, short period of time to uh, to solve her murder. Got to got to use all the all the talents they've got to yeah. you know do whatever. But I mean, so there it is. It's 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 seven pages black and white Carlos art, John and Carlos. It looks like it was going to be folded into Earthside 8 if that had happened, although it does seem it seems like the the only thing that and and we talked about this too that, that that's a comic meant for kids, but it does have a pretty graphic I was like, going to say dude getting shot in the face picture. In yeah, here. they might have had to do something about that panel for Earthside 8. <laughs> and then it never gets it never goes anywhere it just stays this it's is just it, apparently it? on the shelf just yeah. comes out of nowhere here like it's you know it's in barney as a one-off of just yeah. not even like a like a series or anything if anybody's got original art from the burning man do do share the images show us if it's you know out there oh yeah that'd be it fun. must there must must be out the original art for this somewhere definitely and i'll mention also just i, I feel like you know it's wagner especially just because yeah. of, of, of the sports announcing at the start sports. Of it, which is such a <laughs> for me such a key part one of those one of those wagner tells just like just like weird alien words in john smith like you know if we can just get in some like howard cosell type things you know <laughs> you know it's Wagner, basically. Or, or truckers, space truckers. Exactly. Yeah. CB oh, if there had been CB lingo, also. <laughs> Although you know, in the in the '90s, we're getting to, like the CB stuff is just sort of off the radar, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Out yeah. of range, if you will. <laughs> um, but I guess speaking of hey, blasts from the past, like CB radios, I guess, or classic John Wagner for that matter. It's Drill Eight Robo Hunter. Uh, okay. <laughs> 
Another debut here. We'll be seeing more of this actually also in our next episode of this uh, new look for Sam Slade or a new creative team, a script robot Peter Hogan, art robot Ryan Hughes, letting robot Ellie DeVille. I will say I'm glad this one that um, it's it's lettered by Ellie DeVille as well. In the progs, it's, 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 it's lettered by Ryan Hughes, who for someone who now professionally makes fonts and stuff like that, in 1993 is not the greatest of letters. Oh, really? Okay. Right. Fascinating. Um, But in this case, yeah, this is the first time we're seeing this Ryan Hughes look for Sam Slade, which we'll be seeing the progs soon. And I I will say that after the Mark Miller period, it is nice to kind of be back to a at least theoretically fun Sam Slade with Hoagie and Stogie and stuff like that. I don't know. It's It's water in the desert here. Yeah. Um, we see Sam sitting in his office worrying about work very film noir sort of open here especially when suddenly a dame comes in in his door she's heard Sam is the best and she's used to the best (laughs) she's Dolores Del Shannon and she needs Sam to find her uh, her husband and even though Sam is a robo hunter not a husband hunter the advance of 200 credits is enough for him to uh, take the case fair enough (laughs) Soon we see Sam hot on the trail of Enrico Del Shannon, who's apparently run off this robo-secretary. Sam and Hoagie arrive at the Hotel Rotwang, and after some business with Hoagie, Sam ends up going to the hotel alone, knocking on the door, and is greeted by gunshots! Gunshots that cut the outline of the robo-secretary out of the door. They're in the honeymoon suite, and they'd like to be left alone, though we see Enrico has been tied up and gagged on a chair. Stogie yells at the secretary and like, hey, we're just after your husband. What's going on here? She, he gives her a dressing down, actually, which is pretty funny. Pretty and good, actually. Yeah. Hoagie. And Sam's like, whoa, way to go, Hoagie. He's like, I don't like to be shot at, Sam. It's no, not, no good. Um, and it seems that the robot has kidnapped Enrico because she couldn't continue living the charade of her life. And she says she's not a robot secretary. Her faceplate pops open to reveal that she's a human in a robot suit. Am I? Oh, no. The strain of her job, you know, doing robot level work as a human and the handsomeness of Enrico caused her to go nuts and kidnap him. Or, yeah, can Enrico ever forgive her? Sure, he's not prejudiced against humans. And then his faceplate pops open and he's a robot. Oh, gosh. Um, he gives Sam a thousand credits to keep his mouth shut and then Dolores shows up and sees that Enrico's a robot and wondered why their marriage was and you know realized that why their marriage was always so cold and mechanical because her faceplate pops open and she's a robot too everyone's a robot everybody's popping faces all (laughs) over the place <laughs> Sam now gets a total of fifteen hundred in hush money. This is five hundred. That's the family discount. And Hoagie, who's shown up, is amazed because it turns out that Sam actually is a robo hunter. Even even when he didn't know he was hunting for robots, he was hunting for robots. <laughs> anyway, the day is saved. The Del Shannons agree to adopt Betsy the human, and Sam's made seventeen hundred smackers all told. Though after bills and the taxes and stuff, he's only got three credits left. Suddenly, a new slinky babe enters the office, who's clear, like a like a Tin Man from Wizard of Oz level robot, and says that uh, she's heard Sam Slade's the best, and she's used to the best. Wah wah wah. <laughs> 
No less than three faceplate reveals. So, I mean, <laughs> an enormous amount of face po- of, of faceplate popping. Yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, the problem is, of course, it just makes you long for John Wagner and Ian Gibson, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, listen, I thought this was fun. Like, like I, yeah. I, I chuckled along at the ridiculousness. And just, like, again, it's a lot like... One face plate popping is is cliche, but three times is sort of it is ups, reaches the level of absurd to be kind of, like like kind of fun. But this is not that great. <laughs> like, I mean, Ryan Hughes makes a good stab, I suppose. Uh, um, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, and I, I, I and I'll, I'll certainly say that I like this more than some of the Mark Miller. Robo hunters we've had in these pay in these special and annual pages where he just kind of shows up and is in a gunfight basically. Yeah. Okay. So you know, I mean that's that's faint praise, one hundred percent. But um, at least he was actually hunting a robot this yeah, time. Yeah, because after a robot, there were some wisecracks and interactions with Hoagie and Stogie that are positive. So yeah. fine, I guess. But um, uh, and I guess at the end he'll probably be the new client. He'll probably be trying to prize her faceplate off straight away. That's really. Yeah. I mean, I mean, at this point, like Sam's dealt with faceplate popping in the past. <laughs> like at, at this point, you've got to just reach a point where, like, the first thing you kind of do is just kind of ask somebody if they could just sort of like poke around in the side of their head. It's just a, <laughs> it's like at a. <laughs> At the end of like that movie, uh, a beautiful mind, where when he meets somebody new, he has someone else. At, he asks someone else if they can see them or something yeah, like that. Yeah. You know, and like you've been them. burned too many times. I've been face plated too many times before. You know? <laughs> and I guess, hey, speaking of, <laughs> let's continue a discussion of complex issues of identity. Oh no! <laughs> Three hundred nine, the clown. Script robot Igor Goldkind, art robot Greg Staples, like about Annie Parkhouse. I am surprised to see uh, Staples working alone here, just because the clown seems so closely associated with, with Robert Bliss to me. Yeah. Although I guess Staples, they'll Staples and Bliss will collaborate for the next part of the clown. But it's interesting to see Staples on his own for it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and this, well, we'll talk about it. It's early Staples painted work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess we can't only afford any of the original art for this either. Um, but yeah, no, it's got it's got it's it's got too much weight. Yeah, uh, um, of the the weight of the future on it. Exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah, Greg Staples' future. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, oh, it's the clown. Words, so many words, so much words. <laughs> Um, we see the the clown himself sitting extremely buffly in the uh, Rodan's thinker pose and uh, was worried that he's becoming a cliche, which, I mean, again, he's sort of a murderous clown. He kind of is. I don't know. But um, meanwhile, in the past, a clown named Angus tries to convince the, a younger, ver- you know, still portly version of the clown to join the clown union so they can get better pay. But which is fair. But the clown insists that listen, being a clown's not about the money; it's about the smiles and laughter of children. Which, like, yeah, but you know, that doesn't put food on the table. You know, <laughs> I can't. I, I I I can't go to Tesco and and uh, and and buy my pot noodles with the laughter of children, or at least not that I've seen. I don't know. No. Might, that that might be a special um, yeah. card you insert. But anyway. Um, Angus uh, 
uh, thinks the clown is a sap and heads off to spy on the circus's evil ringmaster. He specifically calls him an evil ringmaster, which I appreciate. And we and it, it's a fair cop because the ringmaster is selling guns to impressionable kids. We see him giving one just a kid who's literally got a propeller beanie on and stuff. An automatic weapon. Yeah. Hmm. The circus is apparently the perfect front for gun running. Um, it's diabolical, but before Angus can do anything about it, the ringmaster or a, a bunch of clowns come and threaten Angus. And the, then the ringmaster comes out identifying him at um, Angus as Detective Sergeant Angus Brummer. And Brummer's also the name of the cop in the clown story. Oh. So maybe like the, that, this guy's brother or something like that. Who, who's to say? There, there's a connection at the very least. The ringmaster threatens Toby the pony as well. I hate a stool pony. And then he prepares for some dark deeds indeed. Later, some clowns are drinking clown beer. When someone rode, runs up, Angus is hurt bad. And they find Brummer dying with a pitchfork sticking out of his chest. He tells the clown to stop the ringmaster for the sake of the kids. And with his dying breath, assures him that the pony's okay. Later, we see the ringmaster kicking a kid out of his wagon for trying to buy a gun with marbles. As the clown walks up, pulls a gun of his own, and says, Hey, guns don't make kids laugh. This is bullshit. Or words to that effect, I guess. And pulls the trigger on the ringmaster, but all that comes out is a flag that says blam, blam, blam. Oh, no. Classics. <laughs> Gotta be careful what, about what gun you bring. Get em, boys. Uh, the tough clowns go to attack, but it seems that Toby the Pony has managed to break free of his chains, and he charges the ringmaster, and, and there's an explosion? I'm, I'm not clear about what happens here. <laughs> Like, I thought there was a page missing, honestly. There's yeah. a big kaboom, and that's it. And suddenly the clown is standing on a pile of skulls, some of with, which have rubber noses that were once the ringmaster and the rest of the, uh, of, of, the bad, of the baddie clowns, as the kids, I guess, are okay with not having access to guns anymore. Um, yeah, baddie's been reduced to skulls. The clown tells the kids not to solve their problems with guns, and he hugs Toby the pony. You saved my life! And thus he swears his eternal devotion... And in the present, we see the modern buff clown with the bloody, decaying head of Toby the Pony. And the narration box warns that with the flood of memory, you can drown in a river of regrets and so on and so forth. So is this like the origin story? Yes. Right. This is how the clown and Toby became friends, okay. I guess. All right. And then later, you know, when he gets killed, leads to the path of vengeance and all that stuff. Okay. <laughs> they don't really make it clear. Uh, no, I agree. I didn't understand what was going on. I was waiting for your uh, synopsis to sort of fill me in. And you're quite right. The pony, who appears to have nothing on it apart from the chains which it breaks free right. of and it's not like they they tease that there's explosives anywhere or anything like that where they are i feel like no like i'd expect like a big barrel that says tnt someplace or whatever but no they just sort of rushes into it like seemingly charges into the ringmaster and then boom everybody skulls yeah it's weird the, the ringmaster there's a panel with the pony behind the ringmaster and the ringmaster's pulling a gun yeah there's a kaboom panel, uh, and then as you say, everybody's skulls apart from the clown and the, the good kids yeah. and the pony. Uh, okay. 
I mean, I'll take it as red. I don't know. Like, have, have, have we missed? Have that's we just missed? how it goes. Yeah. Okay. We definitely. I mean, I mean it's just from how they're set up, there's clear, like if there's a page missing, it was missing at the print at the printing process. Okay. Great. <laughs> and there's, at least the ringmaster is genuinely evil. Oh yes. So we play into that comic trope that ringmasters are always bad guys aren't they oh yeah I've, I've, the only the only heroics uh, ringmaster is Stone Cold Steve Austin even he's pretty pretty questionable okay <laughs> sorry bring no, wrestling that's in. right bring Excuse in the wrestling, wrestling reference <laughs> is Steve Austin coming back is that I, I don't want to get into it okay and <laughs> what about Greg Staples artwork what did you think of the fully painted Greg Staples I mean I like it a lot but I feel like I think it's really good I think it's also hard to tell what's going on sometimes. Yes, that's what I thought. <laughs> right. Some of it's quite dark and muddy, isn't it? And I mean, we and it's always the challenge of I mean, even with like moderate paper here of just like being able to see everything and just and I feel like some of it honestly is also sort of how Goldkind's telling the story and stuff like that. Like, there's not a big emphasis on things making sense panel to panel yeah. or like of the visual language sort of like sticking together as you go from panel to panel and stuff. I mean, Wooly Russell, who's a fan of the podcast and who's always very good on this stuff, he posted recently on the 2008. Yeah, he Megaverse. did a breakdown of the of the prequels of the clown prologues right before the summer offensive. Yeah. Right, with Robert Bliss art mm -hmm. and talked about the building up of layers of paint. Yeah. And that must take quite some time. I mean, because I know one of the big things they talked... I, I remember when they talked about with um, when Bisley did... Judgment on Gotham. And I think actually for Horn God too, some of the challenge of getting it to print was literally the page being dry enough to do anything with right. it. Right? right. Yeah. Like that it's not even that the it's not fully painted like that 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 it's finished, but that it's not like the chemical process hasn't happened to the point that it's portable almost. Yeah. So I sort of feel like David Bishop when he came on my podcast and he will come onto the prog in a year or two after this and he says it looks beautiful but it mm -hmm. doesn't tell us the story particularly you know mm -hmm. go back to storytelling so anyway okay yeah well, and that's the challenge with the clown generally i feel like because yeah even even this one's relatively narration light but even then it's sort of uh, the way it's written is not real like is is not really designed to get its full point across i guess yeah like i feel like i'm bringing a lot into this <laughs> one of these ones where i'm bringing a lot into the narration and storytelling i guess there are six caption boxes and a speech bubble in the last panel it's just again this is this is what fox t complains about so often is yeah. all these words all these words yeah. so many <laughs> I guess something that's not light on words, but it's certainly a blast from the past. Yes. Let's get going with Thrillton Robusters. Wow. Oh, man. Yeah. Script robot Pat Mills, art robot Dave Gibbons, lettering robot Dave Gibbons. Two, <laughs> oh. two checks, Dave. <laughs> um, and this is the initial um, Robusters story from uh, Prague. 76, I want to say, our episode 26, the right from the, uh, or 76 and 77 from the right at the 2000 AD Star-Lord merger and stuff. Cursed Earth over and we're bringing these, these characters in and stuff. The year is 2080 and thus, I guess, about 10, 20 years before Judge Dredd takes place, of course. Um, and we get a recap of the Robusters story and the opening page with sort of this Thunderbirds-esque, like, here's all the characters in little circles, and 
like welcome these characters to the story and stuff like that. Um, we get again, yeah, a a quick recap. Just that um, the Mister Ten Percent Harold Quartz or Mister One Percent Harold Quartz bought these disused robots to be part of his disaster management team, and now they go out and do big missions. Although I don't think they actually do big missions in 2000 AD, as I recall them. After this, we we'll have a bunch of flashbacks, and then the next time they actually go. On a on a rescue mission will be as part of the rise and fall of Rojas and Hammerstein, which sort of ends the robuster story at right. that point. Um, so there's a there's been a huge train crash and a car is buried in rubble deep in the Himalayas or whatever, and the robots are sent to rescue the survivors. They tunnel down, but when they get there, they won't be able to leave for a while as the oxygen in the train car is running out. And they only have nine air tanks, and there's ten human passengers, so one will have to sacrifice themselves. Everyone, of course, gives excuses. Uh, there's a priest, there's a couple with a sheep herd, there's a lord, there's a man and his son. And um, when the man is sort of explaining why they can't be, why he can't be the one who sacrifices himself, he um, hurts his son. He, he like grabs him, and the son calls for the, his robot assistant, Harold. And the dad dismisses this. Hammerstein and Rojas go to the luggage compartment where they find all the robot servants of the passengers, all playing cards, except for Harold, who's wearing clothes, which is odd for a robot. Sort of like, oh, I'm worried about the young master and that kind of stuff. Um, Ro Rojas and Hammerstein return with Harold, and the passengers say they can't decide who should die, so they ask the robots to decide using their hard clinical robot logic. This is a terrible decision. <laughs> They're uncomfortable with Hammerstein doing because he used to be a war droid. So they get Rojas to do it and he's in control. It's trial by a ro robot. Why would you do this? Oh God. Why would you put Rojas in charge of the court? A terrible decision. Rojas has indeed somehow found a wig and is be uh, acting like a judge here. He interrogates people, finding many of them are lying about their statuses, especially once the robots come in and start ratting everybody out. <laughs> in the end, though, we learn that Harold is wearing clothes to cover physical abuse by the father we met um, previously. The kid's outraged by this and argues that his dad should die because he's a big jerk. The father disagrees and attacks the kid, causing Harold to retaliate to protect him, choking the father to death. And thus the oxygen crisis is averted because the father's dead and air is passed around. And eventually everybody's rescued. The kid and Harold walking off into the sunset. Classic okay. Robe Busters action. There's some murder. There's some, like, uh, a weird juxtaposition of, of, like, of, of slapstick and, and, and murder and abuse. Like, yeah. ridiculous. There's the there's the thought that if they'd perhaps spent less time shouting and talking, they might have conserved the oxygen long enough that they could all survive. But you know, there's a lot of shouting and talking instead. I'm tired, I'm tired of your of your <laughs> clinical robotic <laughs> logic, Evan. Ridiculous. We got to figure it out. <laughs> we got to figure it out. Somebody has to die. Um, look, it's it's two episodes. It yeah. is it's Dave Gibbons, isn't it? And mm -hmm. it. You know, considering what we were just saying about Greg Staples' art looking beautiful, but not really necessarily the story popping off the page, Dave Gibbons, everything pops in black and white. Uh, so good at it. Um, so it looks gorgeous. It's classic Robusters action. Um, there's lots of Dave Gibbons' emotional human faces at various points. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, 
I mean, it's it's the reprint material. It's the filler again, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, this is very much just like if two of our reprint materials are sort of two more modern um, comics readers. This one's sort of to the the old-timey 2000 AD reader of just here's something from back in the 70s that, yeah. you know, you've got a lot of associations with the creative teams for and stuff like that. This one certainly has gone past the five-year sort of embargo. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 For, yeah, 78, I guess, so... It's robust. It looks yeah. great. It looks great. Yeah, classic robusters, fun robot designs, yeah. all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and he walks off with a robot wearing a natty checkered suit and a bow tie. So, you know, can't be bad. <laughs> what a world. And the know. kid's now got a head bandage because yeah. that's how you know he's been in a train crash. Of course. Yeah. Hey, oh, and hey, speaking of kids who require head bandages. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> what have you done? No. <laughs> Thrill 11, young Dave. Uh-oh. Script robot Mark Miller and Grant Morrison, art robot Steve Park. I was letter robot Steve Park. Actually, speaking of getting two checks this way. Well done, Steve. <laughs> yeah, get the two checks. At the Batter Street Junior School, there's prizes, be- school prizes being given out at 8 p.m. Everyone's parents will be there. Presumably, they'll give out the Hogwarts Cup or whatever. I don't know how, how British school works. Um, but... There's not much chance of a lad from a council estate earning award, an award, unlike the nerd sitting behind him. But the kid, deep in his target comic, responds to this SWAT with an uppercut. It's young Dave! Oh no, please. <laughs> Big Dave, but he's young. Back at home, we learn that uh, Dave's dinner has been stolen by some tough kids, and there's some racial stuff here that I'm avoiding, and um, that his dad is down at the club. Dave runs down to find him, where we learn that his de- his father is trading some pit bulls, apparently. Dave runs into the club, past a terrible comic, and his dad's just, just punching pit bulls right in the face, I guess. Dave asks his dad to come to the awards show tonight because he's going to win something. And his dad punches him in the face, too. Good times, I guess. Yeah. Mm. At the awards presentation, we see that the nerd who's actually named Pansy has a shopping cart full of awards. And he's even given the P.E. award, which Dave was sure he was going to win. Um, Dave's mom is not pleased to have been dragged down to this school to not even see Dave win something. And so she takes a swing at him. But then the PE teacher shows up and reveals the impropriety that Pansy's... They've given Pansy this award because he's got, like, the upper crust breeding and a a loser like Dave shouldn't win one. Dave's mom demands the PE prize. Run for it, Pansy! There's no... This is no place for swats! Which I guess is a British term for nerd? I had not heard that one. I looked up the German dictionary and they said that's what it is. Yeah. People who study a lot. Yeah. It is, like, does it stand for something or anything like that? No, I don't think so. Because I, like, I was sure it was going to be like SWOT. And it's like, you know. I'd have to look that up. I can't I even think, imagine what it was. I think it's for. just people who study a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he goes to run. Suddenly, Dave's dad crashes through the ceiling of the school in like a beret. He's like an army guy, I guess. I don't know. Um, and he demands Dave's prize and kicks the headmaster right in the junk. Pansy goes to run. Dave tosses a coat over his head and kicks him out, the, out of a window. Dave's got his school prize, which is a copy of the book Suede Head by Richard Allen, which is like a pulp novel that's a sequel to the novel Skinhead, I guess. But like now the titular Skinhead has grown his hair out and he's become posh somehow. I don't know. Again, <laughs> like this is the 70s stuff. I don't know. Um, 
Um, and his, but his dad says, but Dave's dad says books are for poofs. And Dave tries to do something about it, but Dave just, but Dave's dad just punches him straight out of his boots. And his mom yells at him for making his dad angry and stuff like that. And this is just, it's pretty grim. It's terrible. This is just child abuse, the whole thing. (laughs) Anyway, it seems a riot's broken out inside the school. So the gym teacher gives Dave a Molotov cocktail and tells him to join in the fun. We see some kids ruling okay as a pit bull urinates on the book. The end. Phew, thank goodness for that. Okay. (laughs) So... Because uh, you and I have been swapping some bits and pieces about yeah. the summer offensive this week, haven't mm-hmm. we? And um, and I'm also because your episode is out this week where you started yeah. Big Dave. As, as we're discussing this, yeah, we've just started our our, our coverage of Big Dave as well and the summer offensive. So and it's a strip. Shall we say it's a strip that divides people? Yes, that some people yeah. see it. Conrad and Fox, as we'll see on the episode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, I, 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 I'm it's waiting a whole thing. for it. But yeah. I, some people find it, you know, can see through the satirical nature of it and get the fun out of it. And some people just don't like it. And of course, even if you can see it all as satire, you've had to dodge around in the recap various bits. There's just, I mean, because like there's satire, but there's also just like, ooh, like this is, this is a lot of satire. Yeah. You know, or this like is, where... At, at, at this point, just the jokes aren't even like they don't even register as jokes. It's sort of like, oh, they, oh there's just racism, kind of. Yeah, you there's know? just racism and sexism and homophobia, and and just a, uh, and just a central joke being like child abuse. Child abuse. Child <laughs> abuse is the stuff. joke. Child abuse is the joke throughout it. That Big Dave, when he was little Dave, he becomes Big Dave because he was abused as a child. Um, Steve Parkhouse. I mean. You know, my 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 problem, with Big Dave, has always been that I just couldn't see uh, past all the mm-hmm. offensive stuff that's in there. Sure. Um, but Steve Parkhouse's art is fantastic. It looks lovely. He draws funny. Unfortunately, I don't want to read <laughs> Big Dave or Young Dave. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. I, I'll say I'm really missing um, the narration in these ones, too. Like, I think that's the funniest part about Big Dave, right. honestly, is um, especially in the second, in, like, the Big Dave story about um, about the royals. Yes. With this really snappy, like, you know, Sun newspaper, like, jingoistic narration and stuff like that. Like, sort of just... You know, recontextualizing things that happen in the story, for instance, or or making references to things and stuff. And I yeah. think that's really that's a really funny part of Big Dave. And I'm 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 honestly missing it here because I th- I think it could be, it could have added something to it as well. And we know from various snippets we've read, Grant Morrison and Mark Miller are sort of like they're in hysterics writing this stuff. Oh yeah, this is the and they 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 may well be. You know, buzzed up on. <laughs> right. This is very. This is very. I mean, it. Ju- it definitely feels like. Yeah. You. You can imagine the writers' room. I yeah. feel like. Yeah. For big. For big Dave of just of of Miller and Morrison sort of. You know, they've had like a big brainstorm session of just what they want. You know, what they want to make fun of, what they want to make references to, what jokes they want to make, who they want to take the piss out of. Yeah. And all that stuff. And um, really just sort of trying to, and it's basically just how can we hit as many different buttons as possible in the yeah. course of this story, yeah. you know. Never been reprinted. Get the Alan Moore, Steve Parkhouse, Bo Jeffries saga, which is much better, I think, uh, much funnier. Will do, yes. yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's such a weird thing. Oh, uh, it is a weird this thing. Big yeah. Dave. So, um, so what can we do? In, be- in between Big Dave and our next story, we've got just a uh, a quick droid profile of uh, Steve of uh, the the man himself, Steve Parkhouse. Uh, Big Dave artist, husband to letterer Annie, although that's not mentioned here. He does not like Madonna and is an Aquarius. There you go. Several like anybody but Madonna type answers. Likes to shop at the Texas Superstore, which I don't think exists anymore. But Oh, man, that sounds amazing. <laughs> I'd love to go to a, a store in England that is Texas themed. <laughs> I got a lot of time for that. Oh. Um, but I guess maybe going back to like, I don't know. It's in... As we've discussed, tales from different comics finding its way into this annual. Let's talk about th- about Thrill Twelve. Meat is meat. <laughs> this is technically a Tharg terror tale hosted by Tharg in a spooky robe. Although I'll tell you that to me, I think this might be a repurchase, a repurposed story from Scream. Shout out to Where Eagles Dare, um, because Tharg's robe looks a lot like um, Scream host Ghastly McNasty, with like a Tharg face pasted onto the on or like a replacement face and a replacement arm. Yeah. In, in in place of Ghastly's more more you know ghostly or, or masked face. That's what it looks like, isn't it? So a narrator um, says that they were six when it happened, and we see a little girl cowering beneath a building. She should have never asked to come to the alligator farm. So we see a creepily sh- a creepy shoeless. Um, redneck type cape fearing around after her you know sort of where are you kind of implied southern accent kind of thing um and we learned that this man has killed the girl's parents brutally and fed them to his alligators she tries to sneak away holding her little puppy but the man who calls himself uncle sylvester is there he knocks the girl to the ground terrorizes her by holding her puppy out over the gator pit but when he does one of the gator leaps up swallows the puppy whole and bites on sylvester all the way up to his shoulder he's dragged into the pit and the girl's all alone you can't expect these animals to be loyal after all meat is meat and this is just grim this is a very (laughs) grim like like and like uh, the big thing. Oh, I, I should say sorry. The, uh, the 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 creators are a uh, script robot Alan McKenzie as Sidney Pal- Falco, art robot Mick Austin, lettering robot Annie Parkhouse, and I'll say Mick Austin has an amazing job of just <laughs> making you feel the terror that this girl is feeling, like as she sneaks around and is threatened by this guy. We've gone from a story about child abuse in Young Dave to a story of a six-year-old girl being terrorised by... And her, fa- yeah, her family killed. Family and killed and fed to alligators by some exploitation slasher yes. film... Right, yeah. Chainsaw Massacre type guy. Why do you even advertise your alligator farm if you're going to kill everybody who shows I up? Know. It's ridiculous. I know. <laughs> Uh, and it's horrible. It's horrible. I mean, she final girls her way through it, <laughs> but and 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 makes it to the last panel where we get also you know another little Tharg face in Ghastly's robe. But she's still just a six year old alone on an alligator farm, presumably in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, 
Like that's not a it's not a, a a decent end. Like there's still peril to come. Frankly, she, she can't get in the car and drive away. Uh, and the alligator's not only eating her family; it's also eating the dog. Right. Yeah, it's, it's very grim. This one, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The dog does not. The dog does die. In yeah. Fact. Oh, yeah. Ridiculous. Okay. It does feel like this is. You know, like a couple of them. It just feels like these were stories perhaps on the slush pile, as it were. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah, this just feels like, yeah, you... Be, I mean, it's 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 only four pages, I want to say, and very much feels like. I mean, we've got we, we always see future shocks like this too, where it's just yeah something ran short, or we just need like to fill some space. And this is very much just again the the scream version of a future shock of just hey, here's something that'll lightly traumatize you that we can just toss in here to fill yeah. space. This will make you feel bad. <laughs> it is interesting. I I will say it's interesting to see Mick Austin in black and white i think because i feel like i'm so used to i i if, if if you sort of tell me about mick austin i think of him doing especially like like uh covers yeah. for 2000 ad and yeah, stuff I like, like this that one. yeah uh, okay i mean it's yeah it's creepy um it feels like it's in the wrong comic and it uh ends with a little six-year-old girl in the middle of nowhere by yeah. herself again very yeah. like shockingly bleak almost yeah. Yeah. Um, then we got another droid profile this one about john ridgeway he's a tourist who loves the roadrunner and just out this and silence are, are his three favorite albums absolutely <laughs> his favorite paper is the sun because of that page three of course oh no that was still a thing then yeah shocking yeah and say speaking of uh enjoyers of our trashy thing of a jigs let's go to thrill 13 dr and quinch back to nature <laughs> reprint material absolutely uh script about alan moore art about alan davis learning about steve potter of course and this originally appeared in um i want to say the 87 sci-fi special a, a previous sci-fi special actually so this is sort right. of a special reprinted in another special the, the, the cannibalization of these things <laughs> um but i do remember when this came out i was not expecting there like this was after like go goes to hollywood and stuff yes. so i thought it was the end of dr and quinch so this one was a treat just to kind of be like oh here's a another chance to hang out with these characters that i was not expecting and by the you know by alan moore and all that stuff yeah so a kid writes home to his parents from Camp Apocalypse. Things are great as their counselors show them the difference from mind-wrenchingly painful poison stingwort and plain old common bindwort. You know, you throw a kid in and see if they're hurt, and that's how you figure it out, I guess. It's Waldo Dobbs and Ernest D.R. Quinch, and they become camp counselors. And yes, it was poison stingwort, just for the record. Yeah. <laughs> um... They seem to be having more, um, they have more fun camp adventures. They're shooting birds to better identify them, starting fires with napalm blasters to learn how to survive forest fires, how to forage for food by robbing stores, and messing with giant predators by accident. As the cops start to close in on the camp, the campers' uh, parents start to show up, being sure to leave their, ki- key, their cars running and keys in, in the ignition as requested in these letters. From the fiery hellscape of Camp Apocalypse, the cops roll in, and the letter concludes as Dr. and Quinch leg it to safety. No one has any appreciation for nature these days. Right. Classic Dr. and Quinch causing mayhem and Camp Apocalypse wherever they go. Uh, it's that 
Alan Sherman song, isn't it? About yeah, hello mother, hello father. Absolutely, yeah, that's right. So it's a parody of that. It, I mean, it, you know, it's hilarious. Uh, Alan Moore um, writing its peak. Alan Davis in black and white, DR and Quinn. And just this madcap action and Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. There's a wonderful panel where um, he does, as you say, the police closing in. Yeah. And it's real Alan Davis sort of menace. The police <laughs> showing at various sort of like Dutch angles and some spooky trees and cross hatching. It's really good. It looks like something from the Captain Britain and the Fury story or something like that, mm. where they're all hunting down and killing superheroes. But anyway, mm -hmm. it is, it looks great. It's hilarious. Uh, I know Alan Moore has, of course, subsequently disowned the DR and Quinch stories as being a bit too sort of um, uh, light-hearted about thermonuclear weapons. I guess. It's such... Like, at this point now, I'm like... I'm scratching my head at, at um, Alan Moore um, uh, disowning DR and Quinch as uh, Miller and Morrison have... have like are, are are willing to say that Big Dave is fine. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, we don't. They, they 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 don't quite understand why people didn't get Big Dave. It's 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 interesting who disavows what and for why. I guess. Yeah, and it's also interesting, and we haven't really got time to talk about it. But it's also interesting as to why I don't like Big Dave, but I always found Darren Quinch hilarious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, honestly, I think some of it is just that they're aliens. They're aliens, yeah. So it's probably easier. I mean, there's a fair amount of child abuse going on in this one, I suppose, yeah. isn't there? You know, the kids, the kids in their care on this camp are not doing well. So, but, uh, yeah, there's a difference to yeah. it, I think, for sure. I don't know if I can describe it, but yeah, yeah. I mean, good stuff. Classic, of course. Um, Dr. and Quinch action. Yeah. Ends in a beautiful coloured two-page spread. Yeah, I, I believe that was coloured in the special as well. Right, um, okay. Sort of continuing on from that, I guess. And the, the, the caption or the little the letter says, like, Endsville, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, classic TR style. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then we've got a final droid profile for art droid Ryan Hughes. He said, I like that he said his favorite 2000 AD story is Thunderhead Central from Progs 1021 to 1033. Wait a minute. Um, he's a Scorpio, and his favorite figure in history is a Google, which a lot of people have spelled like the search engine, but it isn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> a yeah. G-O-O-G-O-L is a one um, to the power of 100. Meanwhile, a Googleplex is a one with a Google zeros, whereas a Googleplex is Google's corporate headquarters. Ah, you see. Uh -huh. There's also an ad for the Judge Dredd yearbook, which we'll talk about next week, or I'll talk about it next week. Covers, of course, frankly terrifying. I'm freaked out by this thing. Just everybody. It's all the characters in the magazine, like Dredd and Mean Machine and Hershey and stuff, but their heads are all squashed together and they're sharing eyes and stuff like that. You can have this one for next week's. They, they, they are society together. All their heads are society together. Ah. That horrible film, yeah. Oh, my. No good. Don't like it. Don't like it. No, we don't. <laughs> and that, in turn, takes us to Thrill 14, Rogue Trooper. Script about Mark Miller, art about David Hill, letter about Annie Parkhouse. This is a weird throwback because it's a new story featuring classic Rogue Trooper with the biochips and stuff. Uh, it's the first time we've, we're seeing uh, artist David Hill on the podcast. He did a Robusters cover for 2080 Monthly, and he'll do a Future Shock in 95, I guess. And we see a giant two-legged Nort Walker attacking a Souther hospital as a chaplain 
and some kind of woman, maybe a nun or something, I'll say charitably. Her, she's got a face, her like a face mask says Joy Division on it with a, a very happy and friendly version of that name versus what I normally see. Most of the time yeah. Joy Division, very dark instead. Yeah. Uh, anyway, though, let's not get into it. They're looking on in despair at what's happening. Uh, but wait, what's that coming through Nort lines? It's Rogue Trooper! Kicking ass and so forth as the chips cheer him on and Rogue uses gunner and some kind of rifle with a flamethrower built into it that he's also got. Rogue makes it to this two Souther survivors and prepares to help them, but before he can, they're gunned down by the Norts! Rogue fires some incendiary rounds and seems to take all the attackers out. But when suddenly the walker disgorges a bunch of Nort hang glider troops, which are Fox's favorite. You'll have to tell about that. Oh, okay. Right. A big fan of the Sun Warriors because they're just ridiculous. Rogue runs to a nearby shoreline, shooting the flyers down as he goes, then dives into the water. The gliders fly low over the water to find him, indeed so low that Rogue can just rip up or reach up and grab one, like demasking him and holding him hostage as he shoots down the other gliders. Um, and then uses that stolen glider to go flying back up to the base. Of course. <laughs> you know, got, got to go back to where they sent him. And I should, oh, I should say, of course, that the base, this mobile walker base, pretty clearly a uh, pound shop um, AT-AT walker from Star Wars. Like, it's only got two legs instead of four, but the construction of it's very much that same sort of, like... You know, like, um, what? It kind of looks like, like a sheep? I, I, or the AT-ATs always kind of look like sheep or goats to me, I guess. Yeah. Just how their heads, or sheep especially, their heads are sort of put on the side of the body and stuff It's like clearly that. an AT-AT, but it's even yeah. less stable because they've just given yeah. it two legs. It's got two. So. It's just like, I don't see how that works. Yeah. <laughs> it's very tippy. Yes. You know, like, it must have giant feet that you just can't see in the snow or something. Yeah, and most incredible gyroscopes or something keeping <laughs> it upright. Absolutely. You know, yeah. <laughs> So Rogue heads back into this walker and aboard it, we see the Nort commander, who's a big dude with purple face plate, face paint, spiky shoulder pads, and a necklace of ears. Um, nice detail. And he's excited for this conference. Yeah, either Halo Jones or Universal Soldier, the movie style, I guess, or various Vietnam things, I guess. Um, he's excited for the confrontation as a goon arms helps arm him for battle. Rogue flies into the walker as Helm wonders what kind of monster would stoop so low as to attack a hospital and abort it. Gunner recognizes the lead, or uh, uh, oh, Helm, I should say, recognizes the leader of the Norts. It's Captain Slaughterhouse, the man who killed him! Oh, no. I don't know if this is how it actually happened. Yeah, I don't remember that, but anyway, yeah. Um, and uh, Rogue starts fighting, but it seems he's quickly captured and at Slaughterhouse's mercy. Slaughterhouse stands over Rogue with a gun to his head as Helm recounts that after Slaughterhouse blew a hole in his chest, he cut his ears off to add to his necklace. And I don't remember, I don't think, I don't remember that happening. I don't remember that, no. Like I, I would remember if in the Jerry, you know, in the Jerry Findlay Day stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Helm was earless, you know. <laughs> Um, anyway, Rogue is at Slaughterhouse's mercy, and the Nort starts kicking him around, taunting him with his own rifle. But sadly, Slaughterhouse doesn't show proper muzzle discipline, which you gotta do when you're dealing with Rogue, because the second that Gunner's muzzle is even slightly pointed at his head, the gun auto fires and blows his eye out or something like that. It's real, pretty graphic again. It is pretty gruesome, yeah. <laughs> 
His eye blown out, Rogue attacks Slaughterhouse with his knife, but Helm begs Rogue, use me! And so, in a welter of gore, Rogue beats Slaughterhead's brain in with Helm. And this is also pretty grim, honestly. And, like, we managed to get a final joke of just, like, Gunner saying, whoa, and I thought I was a complete psycho. Yeah. And Rogue's like, I got news for you. You are a complete psycho. The end. The end. And the end of the yearbook, and it goes out in a welter of gore. Uh, it goes out with the classic bad guy picking up a 2000 AD hero's firearm. Never do that. Mm-hmm. It always seems to go wrong. They planned ahead for it, absolutely. Yeah, they planned ahead for that. Um, it's, it's Mark Miller doing that stuff where he just... He thought that what everybody wanted was just all the the violence and the action and everything turned up to 11 Mm -hmm. straight away. Yeah. Um, Whereas, actually, we quite liked in Rogue Trooper some of the quieter moments when it's him and his biochips. Yeah, I mean, I I, I know... I've talked a lot in the podcast, but that's something that, that's missing from Friday as well. It's just sort of ha- like some kind of camaraderie or an ability to kind of talk and reflect about things and stuff. Yeah. And so it's just, you know, batter, 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 and people getting face masks ripped off and blow, you know, literally butter, butter, butter from the machine guns right. and blowing them apart. And then the incredibly gory hand to hand combat at the end between him and Commander Slaughterhouse right. who looks like he should be an action figure for the um, battle action playset <laughs> I think uh, I was going to make two art points you've already yeah. made one about the Atat Walker which yes. I think is I mean, suspect honestly it feels very classic 2000 AD just I remember a pe- like the early days when every every spaceship was a star destroyer and stuff like that yeah. as well so you know it has a th- almost a throwback feel just oh yes I recognize this plagiarism <laughs> and then the other thing is Commander Slaughterhouse uh, and this is a thing that you see in comic books and sometimes in movies I guess which is um, characters who've got armor with spikes on it mm-hmm. uh, which I always um, you know if I've got a sharp fingernail I cut myself <laughs> it always looks like right, a safety right. hazard turns his head to the side yes. and just gets spiked right into it yeah exactly Absolutely. he's got these huge spikes coming out of his shoulder pads don't turn your head yeah you know? and they're not like and it's not like a like a tr- it's just like a like a big fingernail coming out of there or something yeah, like that like, yeah so I always think that looks a bit daft really because you're just going <laughs> to injure yourself but anyway there you go it, it's it's it feels very 90s Mark Miller to me. Mm, yeah. You know, uh, I think this is what he was doing with his Dread stories, which was just piling on the intensity and the violence and the and the thuggery, really. Yeah, ro- ro- uh, Robo Hunter as well, I'd yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there it is. And it's uh, with, that's... And with that, yeah, we reach just the uh, final page with the editorial credits. You know, this one's re- edited by Alan, by Alan McKenzie and Steve Cook doing the design, etc. And with that, yes, we've reached the end of this 1994 yearbook all right Ooh, fantastic we did it it was quite packed actually wasn't it there's a ton there, there's a good amount of stuff and a, and a, and a decent amount of new stuff actually yeah. like yeah. there's only like it's about 100 pages long and maybe about a quarter of that is sort of is filler or reprints I'd say which is not is not bad like as, as a ratio for these things um, and there's no you know no uh, no text piece as well which is nice so you know not not too bad I yeah. guess no text pieces in our annuals, but please. With that said, I must ask, Aim of the Mega City Book Club, what were your top and bottom thrills for this annual, or yearbook, I should say? Right, so you, as you know, I'm going to disregard the filler material and I'm just going to disregard the reprint material. Sure, that's fair. So let's go for the new stuff. I think 
just because it's so intriguing and that it ne- never turned into anything. And I don't think it would have been a good fit for Earthside 8, but The Burning Man by John and Carlos hmm. yeah. looks fabby to me. I mean, it's a bit 90s in the character design, but this idea of a hitman who's poisoned and has got a limited amount of time to go out there and find his murderer... Um, mm-hmm. I'd read that. Yeah. I, I'd watch the TV show adapted from that <laughs> for, you know, by John. Absolutely. And I feel like, again, like like you say, um, it, it does feel actually very specifically 90s. Because, yeah. again, that's sort of the... that's I, I feel like that's the height of, like, the main character's a hitman yeah. sort of works, I think. And I, I was just so intrigued by it. I was just so mm-hmm. intrigued by it. It does feel like something that's been on the shelf for a while and they just, just said, right, we'll, we'll chuck it in this yearbook. Yeah. But I like that. So that would be my top thrill. And there's some great art throughout the whole thing there's some really good names in there you know Ridgeway and John Burns art even though I don't like the Dread story but mm-hmm. John Burns art so there's some good stuff worst stuff bottom thrill it's going to be Young Dave I just don't like Young Dave That's and fair. even with Steve Parkhouse's wonderful artwork and getting the two checks well done Steve <laughs> um, I'm glad you did but uh, I just don't like Young Dave. I don't like Big Dave. I don't like Young Dave. So that's my that's my worst thrill, my bottom thrill. But as ever, the Space Spinner 2K and UK <laughs> universe wants to know what your top and bottom oh, thrills man. are. Oh man! I mean, I'll certainly join you with big, with, with 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 Young Dave on my as my bottom thrill. We don't like it. Easy choice, <laughs> honestly. Um, for my top, it's a. I've I've, I've I think there's more choices. I thought Burning Man was really interesting as well. It it, it just feels like it's, it comes from another universe, kind of mm. like this sort of like like forgotten thing from the past or something like that. I think's interesting. Um, and you know, I, I really like the Rogue story. I guess um, I like the Tyranny Rex story pretty well, and I like that character as well. But I think my top, I might actually go with with Luke Kirby for this one. I like that story a lot. I really liked. John Ridgeway's art, just sort of with the kids trick-or-treating, and then, you know, whatever, mysterious ghost witch, that solid character and stuff. I thought that was all fun. You know, the way, uh, you know, John, John Ridgeway, of, of course, terrified children is the is the most, is is the greatest um, talent that he has. Yeah. But just drawing the, drawing very realistic characters that have a lot of, like, character to them if that makes sense like you sort of like mm. get a sense of the person's care like personality and stuff i thought was really interesting and it's i don't know like kind of like <laughs> like i i like the witch character just sort of that sort of like i don't know kind of a of a of a of a su- seductive uh female character is a, a little unusual in 2000 ad actually it, yeah. it, 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 it doesn't come up as as often as you might think and so it felt kind of refreshing i guess or like like something that was different and, and worth noting i suppose nice okay good Oh man, another exciting yearbook done. This is the second to last one next next year. Ninety four is our final year of yearbooks before we reach these dark times. And I guess we'll start having like and yes, even like I guess maybe sci fi specials and stuff in the two thousand. Well, I guess those will be specials for a little bit longer. Yeah, we're definitely reaching the end of the of this era that's been with us since the beginning. It's crazy these dark futures. And with that, I hope everybody enjoyed the show. As always, you can find Space Spinner two thousand on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Store, Spotify, or podcast site at spacebinner two thousand dot com. Contact at spacebinner two thousand at gmail dot com on the two thousand eighty forums or our Facebook or Twitter pages on Twitter at spacebinner two k. And if you're you know, and it really helps out if you give us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. Or 
just, you know, if someone's listening to, looking for a podcast, send them our way. This show is brought to you by Steve Green, Robert Hardingham, and your friends at the 2080 Forums. If you'd like to join them and help support the show, we'd appreciate it. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Cradline. That's our podcast network. There you can support the show and get some excellent rewards. Um, and all that stuff. Amen. where can we find you on the internet? Uh, you can find the Mega City Book Club at megacitybookclub.com and follow me on Twitter, MCBC Podcast, uh, or email mcbcpodcast at gmail.com if you want to come on um, another podcast. Absolutely, yeah. I, I, well, so I feel like I, now that I'm looking back on it, I realize I didn't explain what MCBC was, but I also feel like we've been on each other's shows so much that I feel like if you're listening to this, you've probably gotten a rundown of it. Yeah. At, at, at some point, you know, I love the Mega City Book Club. It's my, fav- it's my favorite um, 2000 an AD podcast definitely that's not space <laughs> I dare not listen to the space spitter as much as I can honestly but I just love that you know you jump that you're jumping around to all these different amazing things and also you know I'm fine with also just going further afield it doesn't have to be directly 2000 AD related it's fine there's interesting things to be read <laughs> if you look for 2000 AD fo- podcast you'll find space spinner 2000 and you'll find mega city book club yeah we're sort of different ends of the of the spectrum you know yeah. one going all the way through one jumping around and yeah, stuff. we're complimentary, and I and uh, I, I should say I've been on there recently for uh, Rage. Yes, Strong Team Dog. Dog Rage. You can also hear me talking about Invasion and Shaco, Mac One, Ma- but really yeah. Mac Zero. Exactly. Uh, Fox is on there talking about Ant Wars and, and about Skiz. Yeah, very exciting. Good times. Excellent yeah. stuff. Come on, re- listen to these podcasts. <laughs> anyway, uh, come back to this podcast by Gar next week as we look at the 1994 Judge Dread yearbook a frankly terrifying document from what i could see with several massive stories featuring dread hershey and armitage and then come back the monday after that as we start another big relaunch of 2000 ad with the end of inferno a reboot of mean arena new look robo hunter and returns for slain and tyranny rex glenn favorite slain very exciting busy and until then i'm conrad he's abed and we our Space Bitter 2000 Splendid Book 3!